The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 4 this morning. The word of the Lord. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 3, beginning at verse 13, we'll be reading through verse 17, which is also the end of the chapter. The word of our God. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus is it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Please keep your place here, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. The King is coming! The King is coming! That's what John the Baptist has been preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And what was John saying about this coming king? Well, we'll talk about that in just a moment, but we need to pay attention to the fact that John himself was making quite the stir. Vast multitudes of people were streaming out into the wilderness to hear John's preaching, to confess their sins, and to be baptized by him. They were making straight the way of the Lord because the king was about to come. And what was John telling people about the coming king? John was saying this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly cleanse his threshing floor And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn up with unquenchable fire. Do you get the picture? That is the king that Jesus is talking about. I mean, that John is talking about. That is what the king will be like when he comes. And then the king shows up and he does the strangest thing that we could imagine. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. 
Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? As Michael Wilkins points out, we might have expected the coming one to arrive gloriously in Jerusalem, reclaiming the throne of his father David, reclaiming Solomon's temple as his own. Or perhaps he would come out of the desert as a military conqueror, like the ancient king David. Instead, Matthew says simply, then Jesus arrived from Galilee. He comes as a solitary figure from the insignificant agricultural region of Galilee. And here is the real kicker. Jesus comes asking to be baptized by John. To all appearances, like just anyone else in the crowd. That's what all the onlookers would have thought, just another sinner coming and confessing his sins. But John knew better. See, everyone in the crowd would have been in awe of John the Baptist. They would have recognized him as a true man of God, a man of unusual piety and righteousness. And that is entirely right. As long as we are grading on a curve, John is one of the greatest men of God who has ever lived. But now John is coming face to face with the one man in all of history who doesn't need to be graded on a curve. See, Jesus is not just relatively righteous. He is perfect. He is the sinless son of God. And so John understands, as he looks upon the one uniquely righteous man in all of history, the incongruity of Jesus receiving a baptism which symbolizes the washing away of sins. As I said last week, um, I don't wash my car because it's clean. The very fact that I'm washing my car testifies to the fact that the car is filthy. I I don't wash it when it's just kind of close to dirty a little bit. I wait till it gets pretty darn dirty. But the fact that I'm washing my car is a testimony that my car needs to be washed. And here comes Jesus, not just pretty spiffed up, Here comes Jesus without the slightest bit of sin that needs to be washed away. And he comes to John and says, you need to baptize me. John insists, it is I who have need of being baptized by you. Yet Jesus insists even more strongly. This brings us to the three main things that we need to see from this morning's passage. First, when Jesus is baptized... He fulfills all righteousness. Second, when Jesus is baptized, he is visibly anointed with the Holy Spirit. And third, when Jesus is baptized, heaven opens up and the Father himself declares, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We begin with Jesus fulfilling all righteousness. Look at verse 15 with me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. I want to suggest John doesn't really understand yet. John is consenting because even when you don't understand, faith consents to the words of the Lord. 
But Jesus says this is to fulfill all righteousness. What exactly does that mean? What exactly was Jesus doing by getting baptized? And what does this have to do with fulfilling all righteousness? Well, there are three aspects of this fulfilling of all righteousness that are worthy of our attention. First, the idea of fulfilling the promises that God made in the Old Covenant is absolutely central to Matthew's presentation of the gospel. Uh, You'll hear that over and over again. In fact, we already have. This is why uh, Matthew says things like, um, such and such took place as the prophet or as the prophets foretold, right, in order to fulfill it. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Covenant promises And he is the climax of the covenant. This, of course, includes Jesus coming to bring about saving righteousness. The saving righteousness that the Lord had promised to his people for nearly 2,000 years. Now, many scholars quite reasonably point to Isaiah 53 as a proof text for this. And it is a reasonable thing to do. In Isaiah 53... The Holy Spirit is inspiring Isaiah to talk about the suffering servant who will die in our place. The Lord, speaking through Isaiah, says this in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. So these scholars are surely right to point to Isaiah 53. But I want to encourage you to broaden your scope. It's not just Isaiah 53. See, when Jesus says he's coming to fulfill all righteousness, and that this baptism, this identifying with his people is a step toward that, he means the whole shooting match. Every single bit of saving righteousness in the entire universe that comes to God's people comes to us in Jesus Christ. There is not a single jot or a single dash of God's saving righteousness that we receive apart from Christ. For in him, all the promises of God find their yes and their amen. Second, by submitting to John's baptism, Jesus is not only indicating his solidarity with all the Old Testament prophets, by submitting to John's baptism, Jesus is declaring that he is in solidarity with and the fulfillment of John the Baptist's own public ministry. I won't say more about this this morning because we're going to talk about that when we get to his public ministry. But you should realize that when John is thrown into prison, we hear Jesus saying the very same thing that we first heard on the lips of John. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus is testifying that he's in continuity with John. John's a real prophet sent by the Lord, and that he's the fulfillment of everything that John proclaimed about the kingdom of God and the coming Messiah. Third, and most significantly, Jesus is declaring his solidarity with sinners like us, sinners whom he came to save. Leon Morris paints a graphic picture. Jesus very well might have been up front with John the Baptist, You know, John was doing the baptism. He wasn't getting baptized. Jesus could very well have been up front with John the Baptist, calling people to repent, to confess their sins. But instead, Jesus comes and he identifies with the people down here, the sinners. 
He identifies with us. That's the point. When the angel of the Lord told Joseph that the child conceived in Mary's womb would be named Jesus, he also told Joseph why this must be so. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now we're starting to see how Jesus is going to do that. Jesus will save his people, that is us, from our sins by fully identifying with us. That's absolutely essential to having a clear doctrine of salvation in our minds and in our hearts. Jesus is choosing to live the life that you and I should have lived and die the death that you and I should have died. He is choosing to do so in union with us. He is choosing to do so in your place. By the way, here's one arena where American Christians, I think it's really distinct to Americans, tend to get baptism wrong. It's very common among American Christians, particularly evangelicals actually, uh, to say things like, I am following Jesus in baptism. I am following Jesus in baptism. But I hope you realize that that's fundamentally mistaken. We do not follow Jesus in baptism. Jesus does not get baptized for the same reason that we do. Uh, You might think of it as Jesus comes to the Jordan River, as it were, from the other side. We come as sinners who need to be cleansed. Jesus comes as the righteous one who, as it were, purifies the waters and bears away our sins. Right? We don't follow Jesus in baptism. Jesus comes first and chooses to identify with us to carry away our guilt long before any of us ever chose to identify with him. This dramatic condescension where the spotless Lamb of God chooses to be identified with us wretched sinners is absolutely essential for our salvation. As Calvin so famously put it, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us Therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, Jesus has become ours, and he has chosen to dwell within us. Beloved, here is the wonder of Christ's baptism. The Son of God has so identified with you that through his death, your sins are put away. He has so chosen to identify with you that his saving righteousness becomes reckoned to your account so that Almighty God the Father looks upon you in Christ and says, justified, in the right, perfectly righteous before me, now and forever. This was our Lord's purpose from the very beginning of his public ministry. Indeed, this was the Lord's purpose in the con- being conceived In the virgin's womb, right? You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Look at verse 16 with me. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove 
and coming to rest upon him. We should note this is a public event. This is not simply a vision that Jesus sees. Uh, After all, John the Baptist will later testify to this event. John will say, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Naturally, we should not imagine that Jesus was somehow without the Holy Spirit before this event. Uh, Jesus was, after all, conceived by the Holy Ghost. And if John was filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, surely Jesus was as well. This is a specific anointing, a public anointing, setting apart Jesus for his public ministry that he will do in the power and with the leading of the Holy Spirit. That's what's happening in this passage. Jesus is being publicly anointed with the Holy Spirit because he is about to embark on his public ministry. Before we consider the significance of Jesus being anointed with the Holy Spirit, um, we should probably pause and just say a little bit about that expression, the heavens opened up. It's worthy of thinking about. What it makes clear, of course, is that God himself was speaking directly in this event, not indirectly. It's actually a very rare thing in the Bible for God to do that. God opens up the veil, as it were, so God himself speaks directly. And at least John hears it, and at least Jesus hears it. In fact, we're going to see next week the fact that Jesus hears this is of some significance. God is testifying at the beginning of Christ's public ministry to who Jesus is. This is my beloved Son, in whom... I am well pleased. I think this also corresponds, or at least this likely corresponds, to Isaiah's plea in Isaiah 64. This is verses 1 and 2. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. See, God is rending heaven, and God, the Holy Spirit, is coming down, coming down upon Jesus. And see, what this is pointing to is that Jesus is going to do extraordinary things that will shake the world. This extraordinary event of God rending the heavens testifies to the extraordinary things that are about to take place. In fact, if we think of Old Testament prophetic passages that point forward to the anointing of the coming Messiah, uh, we'll discover that a large percentage of them are actually from the prophet Isaiah. This is a very important theme in Isaiah's ministry. Uh, For example, our Old Covenant reading this morning from Isaiah 42 says this, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. That's the point. And very early in his public ministry, 
Jesus would quote these words from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And you remember when the Lord does that, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue are fixed upon him. And Jesus says, today, these words are fulfilled in your hearing. Beloved, Jesus being anointed by the Holy Spirit is so central to who he is, it's his title. The titles of Messiah and Christ simply mean the anointed one. Jesus is the one who is anointed with the Holy Spirit without measure. So when Jesus is baptized, it's to fulfill all righteousness. And when Jesus is baptized, he is visibly anointed with the Holy Spirit. Yet as dramatic and critical as these events are, the climax of the passage may be what takes place in verse 17. Please look there with me. Verse 17. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Almighty God speaks directly and publicly from heaven, declaring his unique relationship with the one whom John has just baptized. See, we're coming to the very end of the origin story in Matthew. The only thing that remains before Jesus will burst on the scene and quickly overtake John in terms of his fame and his public ministry, is Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Lord willing, we'll look at that next week. But I want you to realize even now that when Jesus goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, he is driven out by the Holy Spirit that has just anointed him. And the very last words in Jesus' ears are these. God his Father saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And as we will see, Jesus holds on to those words by faith in the wilderness where he's nearly starving to death, where all the circumstances are testifying that you can't possibly be the Son of God because the Son of Almighty God would not be treated like this. Well, we'll come to that next week, Lord willing. And yet there is a richness to the Father's declaration, a richness that is not quickly exhausted Um, When Israel came through the waters of the Red Sea, the Lord gave them the Ten Commandments as a covenant document that certified what he had already declared to Pharaoh. This is my son, my firstborn son. Let my people go. Now as Jesus steps out the side of the Jordan River, by the way, that's the right way to picture this in your minds. right? Jesus is not having the Holy Spirit bestowed on him by John the Baptist. When you put the four gospel accounts together and they all talk about this, we realize it's as Jesus is stepping out the side of the river that God directly pours the Holy Spirit out upon him and it is there that God makes this declaration. Right? So, as the Israelites pass through the Red Sea, God reaffirms that they're his true son. Now as Jesus steps out of the Jordan River... God is declaring, this is my true son. 
Yes, Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of God, begotten before all worlds. Yet Jesus is also the true Israel. National Israel was called to be a light to the nations. National Israel was called to be Yahweh's faithful servant. National Israel was called to walk in righteousness and love all the days of its life. And she failed. But now Jesus Christ, the true Israel, will come and do all those things and he will succeed perfectly. And he does so on behalf of his people. Jeffrey Gibbs puts it well. In the end time exodus of salvation that God is now inaugurating as his reign is breaking into history, Jesus has come as God's son, the representative of the nation, to stand and act in the people's place. The one who has come to be baptized in the place of sinners does so as God's sinless son by right to save God's other son, the covenant people of God, who are lost in sin. So there you have it. When Jesus is baptized, he fulfills all righteousness. When Jesus is baptized, he is visibly anointed with the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus is baptized, his Father in heaven declares, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Yet as dramatic as all these things are separately, the real power comes from realizing that there's only one united event. These are three aspects of the very same act of God. Why is that so important? Because Jesus has come to fully identify with you. And because he has fully identified with you, the declaration that God makes over his son is a declaration this morning he makes over each and every one of you who is trusting in Jesus Christ. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. With you, I am well pleased. Amen.